Well, hello everyone. I'm Josh. It's great to see you all here. I'm not usually at EC, so I won't know many of you. Uh, but I, so I'm a student minister, and I do a lot of the children's ministry Friday nights and Sunday mornings. So there's a bunch of you who I kind of know well, but most of you I don't. Anyway, it's great to be with you here. With you, yeah, anyway. Uh, we um, keep Psalm 73 open. This is a cracking part of God's Word. I'm really excited we're going to think about it together. I want to start by asking you a question. What are the two, or what are just the biggest objections to Christianity? If you Say, even for you, what are, what are the things you find hardest about following Jesus, about Christianity in general? I think there's two categories of objections. The first type I think is the most obvious. It's, is Christianity logical? Is it true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And that's kind of what we've been looking at so far this Easter. And I hope you've been really convinced that yes, Jesus did really rise from the dead. It's true. But there's a second type of objection, which is not maybe not as well known or thought about. And it's the question, is Christianity livable? Or in other words, like, does Christianity even work? Like, can I actually live the Christian life? There's so many crazy morals and stuff, like don't have sex before marriage, don't get drunk, go to church like every week, who wants to do that? Like, can you actually do this? And is it even good? Like, does, does Christianity work? Is it livable? And today, it's the last week of our uh, Easter series, and we're thinking about life transformed, how the resurrection transforms lives. And it's at this point that we need to think about this second objection. Is Christianity livable? Because the resurrection does transform your life in a huge, huge way that makes you fundamentally different from the world around you. We are living in the most unchristian Australia there's ever been. And it shouldn't be news to you, right? We know everyone we rub shoulders with, you know, friends, people that we study with, our family, colleagues, they all think that our morals are a bit crazy and weird. Our gospel is wacky and sometimes offensive. And our values are almost evil sometimes. It won't be long before... Each one of us, it probably has already happened, where you're disrespected and belittled, even potentially hated for being a Christian. And so if that's how Christians are treated by the vast majority of the world, then how can Christianity be livable? Why would anyone want to follow this Jesus who apparently rose from the dead? Why would anyone want to live a life where they're scorned by their friends and family and people that they they spend all their time with? Who would sign up for that? Is Christianity livable? That's the question we're going to answer tonight. And Psalm 73, is this is the question it raises and answers in the end. We're going to look at this psalm, so make sure it's out in your your Bible, on your phone. Um, We're going to do three parts. The first part is the good life. Second part, crisis of faith. And the third part, the transformed perspective. So firstly, the good life. Now, if you see at the top of your psalm there, uh, it says, uh, written by Asaph. Now, Asaph was a guy who lived during King Solomon's time. And you can see from verse 1 that he is a God-fearing man. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He knows God. He knows God is good. But he started to doubt it. Verse 2, As for me, 
My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Instead of seeing good come to God's people, he sees it going to the arrogant and wicked instead. They are the ones prospering. They're the ones living the good life. He says, that's not right. Look, you, you see in verse 4 just what, what they get to enjoy. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. I mean, that sounds so good, right? Imagine having no struggles. Imagine, that is the good life, right? That's the dream. That's, and that's what I think we all want, don't we? That's why we, we study hard, we work hard, we save hard, so that we can enjoy a life that is comfortable, easy, healthy, wealthy. Enjoy the good life. But as Asaph watches, he sees that God hasn't given the good life to his own people. God's given it to everyone else, to the people that don't follow God, to people who are, who are wicked. And what makes matters worse is that when God gives them the good life, it makes them more arrogant and more wicked. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. I wonder if some of those verses, particularly that verse 8, sounded a bit familiar. Scoffed at, malicious words, threatened with oppression. That's how Christians, a lot of Christians, are treated by majority of people uh, that we see in our, in our city here. And these days, it's always happened, but these days in particular, it's over the issues of sexuality and gender. Because we hold to God's view on these things, what the Bible says, we get labelled as haters. We've all, we've all been here. We all, we all know what this feels like. Um, yeah, we know that God is love, and we try and love. Uh, and I tell you what, if you... If you are struggling with gender and sexuality tonight, then I want to say please talk to someone uh, that you trust because it's a really, really, really painful and hard issue and God longs to care for you through his people here. So please share that. But the world around us has a different way of caring and loving, caring for and loving these people. It's by kind of encouraging and promoting uh, that lifestyle as much as they possibly can encouraging and supporting a lifestyle that God does not approve of. And you see it everywhere in our society, right? Every movie that we watch or TV shows or the music we listen to, um, the the businesses that we we work for, the advertising we see on every single ad that we watch, um, there's always some kind of reference or some kind of way that people are trying to promote this kind of gender fluidity uh, and sexuality. It's just everywhere. You can't, you can't avoid it. And when, you, when we hold a view that even though it was held 20 years ago by most people, even though we hold it now, we are the oppressive ones, the bigots. And that's really, really hard. You know, I found out the other day that, um, you know, this stuff gets taught, you know, university, high school, even primary school, like this kind of uh, really progressive gender fluidity stuff. 
But I was chatting with a friend the other day who has, my kids are really young, and, uh, and my friend has uh, some kids in a preschool, found out that the preschool has uh, children's books that promote gender fluidity, that are about gender fluidity. Preschool, right? This is what's going on in our world. We're, we're becoming increasingly uh, more hated for this. More hated. Verse 10, you see there, it says, uh, Therefore people turn to them, the wicked, and drink up waters in abundance. Like they drink up their ideas in abundance, these ideologies, these ways of thinking and understanding life when it comes to promoting these lifestyles. The world has drunk them up, and now anyone who doesn't hold them is, uh, is crazy, bigoted. And you see in verse 11 there what they say about God and, and his ways. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? The very God who's given them the good life, they now turn and scoff at. So, you know, I wonder Asaph's doubting God's goodness. God, why would you give the good life to those who don't like you, to those who sometimes hate you, and then those who do love you, that you don't give them good life, and the people that you do give the good life to, like, hate us. What is going on there, God? It makes no sense. And it brings Asaph to a crisis of faith. I don't know if you've ever had one of these. This is the second point we're looking at, crisis of faith. Uh, look at verse 13. Asaph, this is his. Surely in vain... I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Asaph has shown us how unlivable the Christian life is. Like there, verse 13, we have to fight hard against sin. Keep our heart pure. Then we're also afflicted and punished by the rest of the world. Asaph says in 14, every morning he's being punished. And three... We miss out on the good life. God gives it to the wicked instead, the arrogant. That's not livable. I wonder if if you've ever thought like Asaph. Is Christianity livable? Is Christianity worth it? Well, I felt like that. And I don't know know if this is something you have been through or you will, but I want to share with you how it went down for me. Uh, I grew up out near Penrith, uh, went to a big church, my dad was the minister, uh, had a great uh, big uh, crew who was my age, you know, went to youth group, went to church, uh, went to a Christian school, did all those, you know, Christian youth camps and stuff like that. Uh, it was really easy and lovely to be a Christian. But then when I was 15, hands up 15 year olds, they were all keeping their hand down because like, I would not put my hand up right now. Um, they are... Uh, yeah, when I was 15, we moved uh, with a mission organisation called Bush Church Aid. We moved to uh, the far northwest of Western Australia and, uh, and we went and moved to a place where there was no church, where there was no youth group, where there was no Christian school. And in fact, the only, the only Christian I knew my age uh, was there, was there was one in my year of 120 people and he lived 50 k's away from me. So like completely opposite to how I'd grown up. And Christianity was not easy. It was really, really hard. It was hard, um, it was hard being the only one at parties who was sober. It was hard not getting invited to parties because I didn't drink. It was hard um, whenever I tried to evangelise people or share my, um, my Christian faith, which you know is obviously really important to me, whenever I try to share it, it gets knocked back. I remember one time I was in science in year 10 
and, uh, and there's three, three people per table. And I start uh, chatting with the two other guys on my table uh, about Christianity. It comes up, and I'm kind of sharing what I believe. And then the table behind me, uh, three girls on it, uh, and they kind of join the conversation. And I've got an audience. I was like, oh, this is exciting. Like, you know, people are actually listening. Um, and I'm trying to share the gospel. And eventually, I get to the point uh, where I explain that uh, the punishment for sin is death. That's what we deserve for our sin. And at this point, one of the girls on the other table starts crying. You know? um, and I find out that her brother had died uh, in a car accident at 17, um, just a, a few years earlier. And, uh, and when I said what I said, that wages of sin is death, um, she thought that was kind of karma. That's what I was saying. And so she thought that I, like, I was saying that her brother had died because he was a bad person. And so obviously that's, that's a very upsetting thing to say, right? And obviously it didn't go down well. And what was hard is that by that time, uh, the whole of the class was now watching what was going on and could see uh, that what, what I had said and like how you know, offensive it was. And, uh, and that's what they thought of me. They thought I was a big, massive fool slash jerk. Um, it's just really, really hard being a Christian over there where I was. And, um, and it got to the point, I'd been there for about a year, and I was just struggling, and I was just looking at how easy the life is of everyone else and how hard my life was, you know, stri- struggling against sin, getting bagged by my friends whenever I tried to um, share my faith. Um, you know, social life is just, like, pathetic compared to everyone else, excluded, never, never fitting in. And I was starting to ask that question, is, is this worth it? I'm so envious of what else, everyone else, uh, what they're living life like. Why should I keep being Christian? That's what I was thinking. Yes, I thought Christianity was logical, it was true, but is it livable? I was this close to, uh, to stop being a Christian. And then one Sunday, while this massive internal wrestle uh, is going on, my dad preached a sermon. And I can't remember what the Bible passage was, but all I remember was that he took my eyes off kind of the horizontal present world and he lifted them and put them on God and on God's perspective. He transformed my perspective on this life. And that's the third point, that transformed perspective. Because what happened to me is exactly what happened to Asaph. Look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God then I understood the wicked's final destiny. God transforms Asaph's perspective when he enters his presence, when he enters the sanctuary, which is like church. And he transforms it in two ways. Transform perspective in two ways. The first way is about final destiny. Look at verse 18. He sees what final destiny is for the wicked. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. All the scoffing they dish out, the malicious words, uh, the the oppression that they give, it's all going to pass away. It will end, just like my phone battery always dies. It's going to end. That's what will happen to those uh, that do not follow God. Look at verse 27. Those who are far from you, from God, 
will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. God will destroy those who are not faithful to him. That's a, that's a really scary picture of God's wrath. But as Christians, God's wrath that we deserve for our wickedness and for our arrogance has been paid for. We will no longer be destroyed because Jesus was destroyed for us. We won't, we won't bear God's wrath because Jesus bore it for us on the cross when he died. And so now the Christian has a different destiny. What's our destiny? Well, it's the same as Jesus' destiny. Resurrection. We'll have a body that will never, ever die again. We'll have life that is eternal. Everything that happened on Easter Sunday to Jesus will also happen to us. Look what Asaph says about it. Verse 24, he says, Afterward, after death, you will take me into glory. And verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, or I may die, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is the transformed perspective. Earthly life versus eternal life. It's, um, perspective is an interesting thing. It's a bit like uh, glass half empty versus glass half full. Hands up if you're a glass half full kind of person. Who's glass half full? Yeah, yeah, okay, maybe half people. Uh, glass half empty people, hands up. Yep, yep, nice, nice, nice. Uh, well, uh, I've got a glass of uh, water here, just because, you know, not because I'm thirsty. I just wanted to bring it up here to show you all. Uh, now, glass here. Imagine that this glass is your life and the water inside is all the time left you have in this life. Now, what should the Christian be? Should we be glass half empty or glass half full? Should we be like, yes, look how much life I've left? Or should we be like, oh my goodness, I've only got that much life left? Well, the answer is, it's not glass half empty. And it's not glass half full. It's actually ocean full. It's a trick question. Because what happened is, the Christian life is not a glass. That's not all our life is. Our life is like the ocean. And all the water in the ocean is how much time the Christian has. No matter how much gets poured out of this glass, sure, this might empty, but an ocean never gets empty, does it? It's always full. Our life as Christians is eternal. It does not end. Just like Jesus' life will never end. That is our destiny as Christians. That's what the resurrection of Jesus brings. Transforms our perspective on life. Don't think of your life like just a glass of water. Think of it like an ocean full of water. That's our new perspective. Transform perspective. And the second part of our transformed perspective is about the good life. Now, Asaph was jealous that the wicked had the good life and not him. You know, they, were, they had it easy, comfortable, secure, um, healthy, they had the money, all that kind of stuff. But after being in God's sanctuary, in verse 17, his perspective on what the good life is changes. Look in verse 28, it's really clear here and really interesting what he thinks is the good life. As for me, it is good to be near God. 
Asaph realizes that the good life is simply being near God. And we usually refer to this as having a relationship with God. Now, it's interesting. I thought, when I read this psalm, I thought Asaph would just say, uh, you know, the Christian, they'll have a terrible life on this earth, and the wicked's gonna have, wicked will have a great time. But then, after, like, in heaven, that's when the Christian will have, like, the good life and that kind of thing, right? Uh, but that's not what he's saying. He says that the good life is now because God is with us now. Look at verse 23. Yet I'm always with you, now with you. You hold me now by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory, which is with him. See, the good life is a relationship with God. And we have it now. But is that really all it is? I wonder if some of you are thinking, like, sure, yeah, relationship with God, that's great. But is that... Is it really as good as, you know, all these great things in this world? Some really good things we get to enjoy. How can it trump the, you know, comfortable, prosperous life? Well, let me answer that with a metaphor that we read in verse 23. Have a look at it again. Verse 23 says, You hold me by my right hand. Now I want you to think, who last held your right hand? Have a think. Who last held your right hand? Not your left hand, your right hand. Now, it might have been a, you know, a mum or a dad, because we love our mums and our dads. It might have been a boyfriend, girlfriend, a wife, a husband, or just a f- great friend. If you can't remember who the last one was, just grab the person's hand on your right-hand side, and then you know. Now, why do we hold people's hands? Why, why, why did you hold that person's hand? Because we don't hold it at just anyone's hand, do we? We do it for a reason. We do it because of who that person is to us. We do it because of the relationship we have with that person. The intimacy you share, whether it's romantic or not, because intimacy is not about romance. It's because you love that person. I once heard uh, a same-sex attracted Christian man uh, who'd rejected uh, that lifestyle He said this, it's really profound. Humans can live without sex, but they can't live without intimacy. Humans can live without sex, but they can't live without intimacy. Because we were made for intimacy, for relationships. Because we were made by a relational God who made us in his image. We were made to enjoy him, to enjoy all the good things that he has created while we do it with him in relationship. Enjoying, enjoying things with someone else is just so much better than doing it by yourself. Someone that you have a deep relationship with. Now, when someone wants to enjoy God's world and, and his things without having a relationship with him, it's like, when, um, it's like if you hold someone's hand and, you know, be all buddies with them just so you can use their stuff, you know, use their car, their house, their bank account, um, their body, um, their big, massive Kmart staff discount. Um, I mean, it's, it's no good, is it? It's no good when you just d- use, use someone for the things that they have without enjoying them. But that's what people in this world, and that's even what we sometimes do, when we want to enjoy all God's great things that he's put in this world without enjoying them with him, without enjoying them because we just enjoy the relationship most of all. 
But that's what the good life is. The good life is a relationship, intimacy with God. Think about uh, what, did you, what did you really enjoy uh, over the long weekend? Was it going to the beach? Was it playing golf the other day? Whatever it was, whatever it was. Enjoying something with God is just about being with God in that thing. It's talking to Him, saying, God, this is so, so great. Enjoying something that's good with someone who actually made it in God's case, which is so good. And friends, through Jesus, God has offered you an intimate relationship with himself. When Jesus died on the cross, Mark taught, a few weeks ago we heard Mark tells us that the curtain in the temple tore in two. And that, that curtain was actually separating God and humans. Because sin had separated us. But when Jesus dies, that curtain is torn in two because the thing that was separating us from God, our sin, is paid for on the cross. And so now we are able to enjoy a relationship with God. We are able to live the good life that we were made for. We can truly enjoy the good life now because of Jesus. So they're the two ways that God transforms our perspective. For the final destiny that we have, we move from an earthly life to an eternal life. And what the good life is, from earthly prosperity to intimacy with God. But in our world, I think it's really easy to lose this perspective. Just like I did, just like Asaph did, and just like some of us now might have. And so I just want to give three quick thoughts about what to do when you're in that spot, where you're struggling to see if Christianity is livable, if it's worth it. And the first one is to enter God's sanctuary, just like Asaph did, just like kind of I did when I went to church. Go, like be at church, Bible study with other believers somewhere. You know, it's great to hear from God in his word. But particularly, when you, do, when you enter God's sanctuary, you do it with others. And we really need other people when we're down, just down and not able to kind of see the things that we usually see about Jesus or hear. We can't, we can't understand or we lose sight of the goal. We lose our perspective. We need our friends to take our, help us take our eyes off the horizontal and lift them to our, what our eternal perspective is. So enter God's sanctuary. Number two is spend time with God. Like I said earlier, we have a relationship with God. That is the good life. But if you want a relationship with someone, you need to spend time with them. And your relationship grows the more time you spend with the person. Particularly if you're struggling, I think often we sometimes think that we have to tell God what we think he wants to hear, like be on our best behavior with God. But that's not what I'm like with my wife. And, you know, even like God is our heavenly father. That's not what I'm like with my dad either. God wants a relationship with us. He holds us by his, our right hand. He wants intimacy. So tell God how you're actually feeling, whether it's really bad or really good. Enjoy the things of this world with him. Spend time with him as you enjoy the things. The third one is, if you're really struggling, uh, I want to recommend this book. It's called Enjoying God by Tim Chester. Uh, Let me just read the back. It's kind of, uh, what does it mean to have a relationship with someone you cannot see? We talk a lot about having joy, but Christianity can feel more like a dutiful slog. We, all, we talk a lot about knowing God, but it's easier to know more about God than to know God more. And if these things ever bother you, then this is the book for you. It really kind of gives you lots of practical things about how to enjoy a relationship with God. 
Uh, if you'd like to read that this week, come grab it off me. You're welcome to borrow that. It's, it's really easy to read, and I just, I'm so benefited from it a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, sometimes it's hard to see how a relationship with God is the good life, but uh, this book is really helpful for that. So, we've come a long way. Is Christianity livable? That's the question we started with. So what's the answer? The answer is, well, it depends. Depends what you mean by livable. If, if the livable you want is, no, easy life, does life get easier when you become a Christian? Well, I don't think it does. Not in this world. But does life get more joyful, more fulfilling, more hopeful, more peaceful, more full of love and intimacy? Then yeah, it does. Christianity is livable. In fact, Christianity is more livable than the world's way of doing life. Think about it. You get eternal life. Your life is now an ocean, not a glass. And you get the good life. You get God himself, a relationship with the one who created you, who created everything, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who loves you so much that he actually decided to become a human. God became a human so that he could die on a cross for you in your place. That's how much this God loves you and he longs for a relationship with you. That is the good life, holding the hand of God. Let me just finish now with the words that we heard earlier from Colossians 3. It's going to be on the screen. Don't, don't feel like you need to open it up. But I think this passage so clearly has this um, transformed perspective in it. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, with God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's that eternal. When Christ, who is your life, the good life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can have a transformed perspective. We can enjoy a relationship with you. And Father, help us to see how that is the good life. Help us not to be so distracted and consumed with earthly things. Please help us to see how big you are, how wonderful you are, and how good and joyful it is to be in relationship with you. We pray that you'll continue to teach us now and into all eternity uh, how great and glorious you are, and that we might enjoy eternal good life with you. Amen.